after I got let go from my job, initially it was good because I wanted to get out there on my own terms. So I thought it was a blessing in disguise, and it was. But it, it took me about six months to get any type of work again. And I remember being on job seekers allowance and um, being unemployed, and I, I had nothing really to do with my my days other than sort of job search and stuff. And I just felt I just I, I got quite bad depression at that point. And that really, for me, felt like the rock bottom kind of thing. I felt like I'd lost everything. And I, I became a proper like pessimist, like a glass half empty type person. I didn't think I'd be able to get a job again or a girlfriend again. Or like, even when I went out and I was with friends, I felt like a burden. Like, I felt like I had nothing to contribute to the group. And I was just like this kind of person who just did nothing and had nothing to really say. <laughs> Welcome ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host Matt Brown and you're listening to the Embryo Podcast. Each episode we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L is a loss. So sit back, relax or do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go. Welcome everybody to another episode of Every Year Podcast, where we have different guests come on and talk about whatever it is they feel like was potentially an L. I say potentially because when we have this conversation, they'll elaborate later on if they still consider it being an L or something else. And the beautiful thing about these conversations is the fact you get to learn a lot more about a world that isn't potentially your own. A lot of us may be just living our lives blissfully unaware that what's normal to us isn't considered as normal to someone else. And we make a lot of assumptions about the people we interact with. And that is fine. It's kind of like a, a self-cope mechanism that we do. It's a little bit lazy, admittedly, but it's what we do to recognize patterns and forms of behavior. But when you dig a little bit deeper and you listen to what people have to say, like what my guests do, you realize there's so many more layers that make that individual who they are and the reason for why they conduct themselves the way they do at that moment in time. And I am so grateful to each and every one of my guests that come on and share what they share because it's extremely intimate to them. And and they're putting themselves out there to make people feel less alone who may be going through similar struggles, but also to sort of show people this is how I navigated that situation. Not necessarily how you're, you are going to do it if you're in that situation, but just giving you a heads up, this is how I done it. And it is so powerful that we just get rid of any stigma, any defunct any myths that are out there that are talking about you shouldn't say this you shouldn't say that why is that why should people be felt to be alone imagine being in a crowd full of people and feeling alone feeling isolated feeling that your opinion your voice is not worthy that's absolute rubbish you are you are valued you are human you are beautiful and yeah you might be beautifully broken but a lot of us are and that's no shame in it. So I'm absolutely so happy to have this fantastic guest. And that's a cliche phrase, but I stand by it. All my guests are fantastic. I have James, who's going to jump on and share with us a couple of L's that he wants to talk about. But before we get into that, I want to have James just share a little bit about himself. However, I'm going to interrupt his intro and say, this guy, I've spoken to him a little bit. He's a really nice guy. He is just down to earth, very open. 
not open to the point where you feel like, okay, read it back in now. You're just, you're just drowning me in information. It is at a pace where you feel like, wow, so unassuming and been through a lot, but ha- taking it in his strides when he's conducting himself. And I imagine that takes a lot of strength, a lot of coping with that. But I, I hats off for him for reaching out, I hats off for him for being the person he is and for helping other people feel less alone through the great work that he's doing, not just in his professional capacity, but what he does outside of that. So thank you, James, for being who you are and doing what you do. And if you don't mind, please introduce yourself. Of course. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. So I'm James. I'm from Watford in Hertfordshire. Um, live in a flat with my fiance. I'm nearly 33 years old. I work for a mental health charity in the marketing team. And I recently became an author of a mental illness memoir called um, Befriending My Brain. So I'm sort of wearing two hats. And I think, yeah, that's mainly me. That's that's the gist of it. <laughs> he makes my intro seem so long-winded and he just knocked out the park in such a short space of time. My gosh. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So the first L that James wants to talk about is psychosis and schizophrenia disorder. Disorder. Mm. Wow. My vocab is shot to pieces right now. Can I just say this right? And I said this the other day to someone else, like offline. When they name these things, they're not easy to spell. Oh, tell me about it. If someone's dyslexic, they got it's spelled weird looking. You got schizophrenia, you got psychosis. Why are these things not easy to write so that people can talk about it a lot more? Whereas they're so hard to read, letting on write, that people will just skirt around it saying, Oh, I've just got a condition. What's that condition? Uh 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 don't worry about it. So hard. So I'm looking at your L and I'm thinking, right, you want to talk about your condition, which is great. I'd love to know more about if you don't mind going back to where you feel it's more relevant to start from, maybe when you first got diagnosis or how you led up to getting that diagnosis, wherever you, I said, wherever you feel is appropriate. Yeah. Start from the top and let me know how, how things have panned out for why you think this was potentially an L. Yeah, sure. So the first incident is going all the way back to 2016. I had my first psychotic episode, which was triggered by a big breakup. So I was with someone for three years and then it was kind of breaking down for a while, but we sort of tried to make it work and it didn't. And then the actual breaking up and like moving out of where we lived back to my family home about a week after that, I just, I wasn't sleeping because I was like overanalyzing the situation in my head and at the same time trying to carry on with life, like not really giving myself a break. So like still going to work and just trying to do it all and just sort of overdoing it, not like really neglecting my sleep and not having the self-awareness to say, you need to just stop and look after yourself. And I just got progressively worse. Mum took me to the doctor. I didn't think anything was wrong with me, which is quite a common thing with psychosis is um, you don't kind of stop and think, oh, there's something wrong with me. You kind of feel okay. Like you feel almost, you know, like you can carry on with it and just keep going. And I, so I was like in denial, but I was getting worse and worse. So I was, t- I was talking really fast without making any sense. Like I was jumping from one subject to the other. And I had like these fixed delusions as well. So one delusion was that I was being 
headhunted for a job, which never happens. I also thought I was getting messages from different sources, like from the TV and radio, like coded messages. And I even thought the weather was speaking to me at one point, as crazy as that sounds. And before I got taken to A&E, I even thought brother had like a motive against me, like that he was tracking me and wanting to harm me and things, and which is um, really so out of character considering like how close we are now and that we grew up together. So yeah, it was lots of out of character behaviour and that led to being taken to A&E in an ambulance because my behaviour just got so out of control. Mum and Dad had to call an ambulance taken to hospital and assessed there and then sectioned. So had to spend four weeks in a um, psychiatric ward just for my own safety and for the safety of others. Like I couldn't go home because I was just in too much of a state. So had to go and spend a month there. And um, it was really hard, really, really traumatic and scary, but necessary because, you know, they needed to sort of put a stop to it. They needed to give me the medication to like slow my mind down effectively and make me sleep again because I'd been so sleep deprived like my brain was all over the place like it didn't repair itself like it does when it, you sleep and um I was just yeah in such a state it was really a horrible thing to go through like it really sort of derails you it had to take a lot of time off work and it, I took it really bad like I got really depressed I got really frustrated with myself like I found it really hard to get back to life like after the illness like going back to work and things so it was really like a real kind of uphill battle back then like 2016 and 17 was really difficult time and it didn't take it took me about I'd say I didn't start kind of making my recovery until 2018 was when I finally managed to kind of turn the corner and start improving so yeah really really tough time but I'm in a good place now sort of fast forward to to now like I had a relapse in 2019 but um I've made a lot of good kind of strides like I've recovered and like because it's such a bad thing like you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy that's caught, sort of part of my motivation to not only keep myself well but do this like raising awareness and sharing the story just to help other people avoid it and also people who have already happened to them just to give them like you know the message that it does get better like you can get your life back because like when it happens to you 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 almost think like your life is over it it really messes you up that's a shame wow it's, it's a lot so you mentioned the acronym any could you just explain what that is for those that may not know what it is um ne you mentioned that you was going to go to any oh a and e um accident and emergency A&E. my yeah. apologies I've, i heard any my apologies that's fine so when all that happened after the breakup, was there any telling signs prior to the breakup? I don't think there were, to be honest, because I've spoken to family and friends and I think there wasn't anything that was overly concerning prior to the breakup. I mean, I was stressed and anxious and people were like concerned about me, but it was just kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like kind of standard, normal breakup stuff but it was just like you know people were a bit concerned but it wasn't alarm bells if that makes sense it was it was still kind of like I was coping just about 
The reason I ask is I'm interested because everyone copes with things differently and there might be certain things that trigger one and may not trigger another. But unique to you, do you know if anything was just like, uh, that rubbed me the wrong way or I dealt with it in a bad way and that was potentially, to the untrained eye, that was you going on the path of you're going to end up here sooner or later? It's tricky because I, I, I tried so hard to kind of make the relationship work and um, I think I was putting all my energy into that and not any energy into looking after myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so then when, when the breakup was done, I still wasn't really looking after myself and it took me a while to get gain that kind of self-awareness. Ah, it's brutal. Yeah. So you had to go through that. It's not nice. That's all right. Um, and I think also back then my knowledge of mental health and mental illness was very minimal. I didn't really have a very good understanding at all. And it wasn't until it, it happened to me that I started to get an understanding like through the experience. Wow. So when you was going through your breakup, what were the things that you were doing that were the signs that you was having a psychotic psychotic breakdown or just yeah yeah you can call it that or psychosis psychotic episodes sort of mean round about the same thing i'm learning here i'm happy to be corrected (laughs) you know more of it than i do yeah it was after the breakup that the breakdown began really i kind of the we moved so we were living together and then i moved back with family and then it was about, I think it was about a week after living with family that the signs started to unravel, like my not getting any sleep and talking to like my family and not really making sense and behaving strangely. Did you go to the doctor at all off your own back? No, so the, the problem was I was in this like state of denial and um, <clears throat> my mum and dad like were very insistent that I had to go to the doctor and I was kind of going to the doctor just to kind of appease them rather than actually thinking I need to go to the doctor. It's like, I was like, oh, fine, I'll go if you insist. And then I, in my head, I thought we were going to go to the doctor and the doctor was going to be like, oh, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And I was very um, incorrect about that. So it's a shame I didn't have the kind of awareness back then, but yeah, it's hard when you're in that state to kind of see something's wrong with you. Well, you don't know what you don't know, really. So it's hard to sort of beat yourself up over something that I, I wish I knew then, but you don't. And it's hard because we're kind of conditioned to push on, just like we have those of us that are working have some, some, some have the luxury of being able to call in sick. But some people don't want to call in sick because they feel guilty calling in sick. I've caught myself doing it where I'm genuinely not well. I think I had an abscess at one point, so I was absolutely wrecked. And if anyone doesn't know what abscess is, it's about getting infection in your tooth. It's horrible. Abscess. You can't eat, you can't drink, you can't even sleep the pain off. It's just horrible. You're living in a form of hell. And I was rehearsing how I was going to sound to my boss, calling her up to tell her I can't come in. What type of foolishness is me doing this when I'm in genuine pain that's kept me up throughout the night and I'm putting on a voice, rehearsing before making a call. But I think that's how we're conditioned by society where, yes, you do get sick leave. It is part of the job description, but you utilize it. I'm going to judge you for it. And if there is something that's not right with you, 
you should be able to get checked out without any fear of judgment by that, by saying, mate, I'm not feeling 100. I don't think I'm reacting the way I feel I should be, maybe. Just let give me the rundown. Is Am I A-OK or is it something else? And yeah, it's a very alien for us. And unfortunately, from my understanding, it's a lot of men that struggle with that in terms of accepting that you need to go to a GP and actually be honest with the GP, which, you know, like you said, you went to GP to appease your parents, but you was, you was honest with them with the GP, I take it. Yeah. I think that really resonates with me though, because back then in my kind of mid twenties, I was very much like a example of a male who didn't want to seem weak, who kind of wanted to just carry on. And I didn't like the idea of calling in sick at that time either. I think I only did it when I thought I was physically ill. I thought back then wrongly that it was only if you were physically ill, if you had the flu or whatever. And I didn't think, you know, having sick days for mental health was a, a thing back then. As bizarre as that sounds like to me now, I just, I thought, yeah, I was, I guess I was scared of like the judgment and the, the appearing weak and all that stuff. And yeah, it's just, a, it's a shame, like kind of how different things were back then. Definitely. So you went to doctors, they said to you that, yeah, this isn't right. How did you react to that when you got told that by your GP? Did you feel relieved or was it something that you just felt like, damn? I remember being quite scared, actually, because I remember being in the car on the way to the GP. Mum was driving and I remember having this fear based on maybe, a I don't know, a film or TV program I'd seen that I was going to be taken away in a straight jacket type thing and so yeah i was just worried that something like that was going to happen to me well thankfully it didn't happen to you did it happen to you I mean, it didn't happen to me in my, the way my imagination thought it was going to. Because, yeah, I think my, at the time, lack of knowledge and awareness was just, I thought that it was going to be like in the old days where it was like, it's like an asylum and you get like forcefully taken, which doesn't happen anymore unless it's, you know, absolutely necessary. And so it was all just such a, a learning experience for me, like a steep learning curve, like a discovering like all sorts really even though I wasn't in the place to be learning it was like just a it was a shock not only my behavior but like that I could I guess when I was well I never thought I would be in that situation like I naively, I naively thought like I would never be one of those people kind of thing yeah I get that so when you had to go in how was you feel at that point I remember being in a taxi, like going from A&E to the, the wards. And I think I was just so lost at the time like, and so in such a state, I didn't even know what was going on, really. I just, I think I just sat there thinking like that I was being taken to, like, I don't know, a hotel or something. Like I didn't even really have much awareness of what was going on. And I just, I, got, I remember getting to the wards I'm thinking I was in a safe house or something because I, I was still very delusional at this point. And yeah, it didn't take 
until kind of after I got there and I realised that it was just a ward of people who are unwell and NHS staff, I sort of slowly, I think, put the pieces together and I kind of realised why I was there. But it was still really scary like, and I didn't want to be there. And I think the whole, the, the knowledge that I had to stay there and that I couldn't go home, like as if I was like locked up or something, it was kind of really like scary. And I just remember constantly asking the staff like when can you know when can I go home like how long is this going to take like how long do I have to stay here sort of thing and they couldn't give me a straight answer because it kind of depends on your progress and like your how you respond to the treatment and things like that with your mind going the way it was so rapidly just thinking about anything and everything and trying to connect dots that may not have actually been there when you're talking about you know your brother tracking you and so forth like that until you got the medication how was how was your mind at that point because I'm just assuming that you're in a different place to where you're normally used to being not 100% sure what the process is even though they might have explained to you how things will pan out what the journey that you know what the expectation is did you get into a state of panic because I'm I personally feel like I would panic in that instance not trying to put that on you but me Mm -hmm. personally sitting here thinking about it would be like at the best of times when I'm unsure of how something's going to pan out anxiety kicks in if my mind's already racing, that doesn't feel like it's going to help me. It feels like you need to do something sooner rather than later because I need answers. There was definitely, like, I can think of one or two examples of panic. Like, I think near the beginning, I was kind of running away from staff for whatever reason, thinking they were, like, out to get me. And I remember also there was another patient who used to really freak me out because he had this... um way about him where he he would pace up and down the communal area and he was like keeping eye contact with me like wouldn't look away from me so it it really freaked me out and I still sort of had my delusion from before I was in there about being tracks and like I even thought it could have been like my brother in his body or like he was controlling him or something weird like that and it was just like I was just so delusional and all over the place. It was, it's almost like incomprehensible. Some of the stuff that was going through my head, it's just so far away from my normal like reality. It was just, cause your mind just about like your mind just comes up with all sorts of ideas and conclusions. And you just kind of, you don't really, I guess you don't question the logic that you're unwell or the lack of logic. Even you just kind of, you don't know what to believe. Yeah. And I'm interested to know the answer to this question because, again, it's something I feel some men are not, at least another guest has openly admit to it. How receptive was you to taking medication if you had to take medication? Um, I think I was mostly good with it, apart from, like, I remember one time being asleep in my room and being, like, woken up by one of the staff because they wanted to give me pills. And I remember I might, I might have been a bit rude to them, but because they woke me up and everything, I was just re- really annoyed, like thinking like, I'm already asleep. Why are you giving me medication to, you know, I feel like the medication's already done the job and you woke me up sort of thing and being really like, you know, grumpy about it. But I think the staff in there are quite used to people behaving in like in all sorts of ways. But I think for the most part, I was receptive because I thought, eventually I thought, if I'm going to get out of here, like I need to comply, like I need to behave myself. 
do everything they ask of me. And I think there was a little part of me that kept saying, that's your best chance of getting out of here sooner rather than later. Just take the medication, you know, do what they're asking you. And hopefully it will be over sooner rather than later. That's fair enough. And with all of that, and you said it took about a month before you was discharged. Yeah. How did you feel when you were discharged? Initially, I felt really amazing. I remember sitting in the back of mum and dad's car heading home thinking, again, a bit naively, thought the worst of it was over. And like I thought I would just kind of go back to how life was before it all started. But it was only kind of the start of the recovery in some ways. So it's like an, an initial, like, thank God I'm going home because the whole time I've been in the ward, I just want to be at home. And now I'm finally getting what I want. But then when I was home, I just, it didn't take me long to get kind of fed up with my situation as it was then. Like I had the, so the aftercare I received at one point, I think every day there was people from the mental health team visiting my house to check up on me and like, talk to me and my mum and like make sure I was you know still taking my medication and doing things like that because that that's sort of part of the agreement when they send you home it's it's on the on the um what's it called agreement that you're gonna like do this that and the other so yeah after I got home I was kind of just fed up of not being at work fed up of taking medication and I can yeah I, I remember being very bored and very impatient like just wanting to crack on with life and just put the whole experience behind me and just sort of forget about it and how was work about it were they quite supportive yeah I felt quite lucky with work because they gave me enough time off like after I got home from the wards but they also put a phased return back uh, a return plan in place for me so I think I started on doing two days a week and they were half days rather than full days so um, it was just like starting with a tiny bit of hours and then building it up, which um, which kind of happens, but it, it wasn't easy. Like I thought I would be able to increase my hours like fine, but it was really hard because doing my commute and doing a job under all the sedating medication proves like really, really difficult. But um, work like did all they could. Like I had a monthly hate meeting with HR my line manager and they also sent me to like an occupational therapist so it was like a doctor off-site off so I had to like get the tube and go and see this doctor about once a month and yeah it didn't work out in the end like I had to be let go it was like a settlement agreement so it's like a form of it's kind of like being made redundant similar to that but I feel like my employer did pretty much everything they could the only thing which I always say might have helped is being allowed to work from home a bit. But back then, sort of like 2016, 17, people didn't really work from home back then. Like it was only kind of the higher up managers who did it. And like people at my level only really did it if they were maybe as an alternative to being off sick or, you know, unless it was absolutely necessary, like no one really worked from home. Everyone was expected to be in the office five days a week. Fair enough. And you you got a bit of handle on it now? Yeah. Um fortunately I'm on a, a medication now which has the best of both worlds because it gives 
need the benefit of being able to go to sleep and stop my racing thoughts, but the side effects aren't overbearing. Like I can get up in the morning and I can, I don't get like the brain fog. Like I feel I can think clearly and everything. So yeah, I feel lucky that I've got that balance and the medications to me, it's a godsend. Like I wouldn't be able to live the life I live now without it. So I'm happy to be on it for the long term because it's just, it's just what's best for me. Love that. And if you're going to say that was an L, would you still consider it an L or would you call it something else? I don't know. Cause um, I feel like I I'm doing my best sort of turning it from a negative to a positive and as, as really as bad as it all sounds and as much as I hated it, like it's the worst time of my life. I wouldn't change any of it because it's led me to where I am now. And a lot of good things have happened kind of as I've recovered. Like it's uh, sort of opened doors for me and I've been able to help people. Like I work for a mental health charity now and I've been able to, even outside of my job, I've been able to help people raise awareness, like reduce stigma and things like that. If that Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. So I'm glad to hear that you're trying to take the positives out of it and you wouldn't change a thing, which... Uh, given how you started it off, sound like uh, maybe there might have been a hint of I would probably change something, but it's nice and endearing to hear you say you wouldn't change a thing. Can I ask, during that process, let's say from 2016 up until when you got discharged, or yeah, let's say when you got discharged, when was your lowest point and what was you doing to deal with it? So what was your reaction to it? Uh, I say lowest point was after I got let go from my job, Initially, it was good because I wanted to get out there on my own terms. So I thought it was a blessing in disguise, and it was. But it, it took me about six months to get any type of work again. And I remember being on Job Seekers Allowance and um, being unemployed, and I, I had nothing really to do with my, my days other than sort of job search and stuff. And I just felt I'd, I got quite bad depression at that point. And that really, for me, felt like the rock bottom kind of thing. I felt like I'd lost everything. And I I became a proper like pessimist, like a glass half empty type person. I didn't think I'd be able to get a job again or a girlfriend again. Or like, even when I went out and I was with friends, I felt like a burden. Like, I felt like I had nothing to contribute to the group. And I was just like this kind of person who just like did nothing and had nothing to really say so it was proper difficult kind of it was like being in a pit to be honest like a metaphorical pit like an uphill kind of environment would you say it's like ice skate trying to ice skate uphill <laughs> yeah it felt like it at the time but i i did um volunteering so that was the i got like a temp job with my old employer to have like a little part-time pay job but alongside that i did volunteering and um the volunteering was in marketing, which is what I did for my degree. But up until that point, I hadn't really used it. So it was like starting at the bottom of the career ladder again. But it was a really nice kind of no pressure way to kind of build some experience. And um, it was for a charity as well. So it was a breath of fresh air compared to like doing a corporate job again. And that kind of gave me a new lease of life. And I sort of did that. And then I started doing a bit more exercise. And that kind of led to more exercise and 
like feeling better. And so I was able to kind of start looking at things more glass half full and like more kind of optimistic, if that makes sense. Yeah. It does, because the second part of the question was, how did you deal with it? Because when when people tend to be in a really bad place, how they react tends not to be in a very healthy way. Did you lash out or did you act in any negative way during that time? Because I'm happy to hear that you've you found something where you could do your charity, your volunteering work, you could get a bit of part-time work for your previous employer, and eventually the the groundwork was being laid in terms of you getting into a better state of mind which is fantastic but before you got to that part how was you reacting when you was not in a good place after you was let go using a bit of depression i don't want to say i said bit of depression i do apologize i don't mean to minimize it by saying bit of depression because that's not the case i mean in terms of you had depression you weren't in a great place how was you reacting at that moment yeah i remember going on these walks with my mum and um she would kind of try and steer me in the right direction and kind of try and help. And sometimes I wouldn't, I don't know if I quite lashed out, but I'd kind of say, you know, oh, you don't, you don't know what it's like being on this medication. And, you know, you, you say that, but you don't know that. And all those kind of things, like I kind of, I know she was like trying her best and trying to help, but I was kind of, it was, I guess it was hard to convince me and hard to, because like, I really lost like, my get up and go by that point. And so I guess I wasn't easiest to be around because um, I'd kind of, it's like I'd turn the conversation back towards me being sad and negative rather than seeing like looking at the bright side. And I wasn't really practicing gratitude back then either. Like now I'm really gra- for, grateful for what I have. But back then, even though things were really bad, I still had a roof over my head, like a loving family and friends. And I had my health and I wasn't kind of thinking of it that way. I was thinking about what I didn't have. So I can imagine it was kind of difficult for mum and dad. So kind of, I can imagine they were sort of thinking like, oh, I feel like we've tried everything and um, he's not kind of, kind of like believing us sort of thing. Cause they were talking sense. Like they were just doing the right thing. They were saying the right things, I think. But also uh, what another thing which kind of, got me back on the right track was I started to read other books and like blogs or people other people that had mental illness so uh, my mum read this memoir about someone who had been sectioned three times and he had bipolar disorder and I didn't really want to read it and I thought I'll oh, go on and I'll, I'll give it a try and I was I was hooked and I was really like intrigued by it because it was like the author's words on the page were my own thoughts like about how it was to be ill and that just made me reflect and like resonate a lot. And I, I thought if, if these people who I'm reading about can like make me feel this good, like this, like better about myself, then potentially I should stop. I should start sharing and, and like, n- instead of trying to bury the feelings and forget about what happened, like start opening up. So I think it was a combination of that. And like what I said before, like the volunteering and the exercise sort of finally got me out of that mindset and managed to kind of put the worst of it behind me. That's great. So is that what you'd tell your younger self, knowing what you know now, going back in time to that low point where you was going through it and you're struggling to deal with it in a healthy way? What are you telling yourself? And how would you have to say it for yourself to hear what you're saying? 
Yeah, so there's like a, at the end of my book, there's like a letter from my my self to my past self. And in this letter, it's like me talking to the person who was like recently out of the ward and like depressed. And one of the things, the first thing was about getting the medication right, because I spent a lot of time on the medication, which wasn't working for me. Like it was too sedating. But back then I almost thought that was as good as it was going to get. And it took me a long, long time to actually say to the doctors, like, I'm really not doing well on these medication. Can you, is there anything else that you could try different that might work better? So I think that was like a really important part of it. And I'd also kind of say to my younger self to sort of try and spend time with people like friends and stuff, even though you feel like you don't want to, like it always gives you a boost. So it's like kind of keep making the effort to see people and I guess discover things that you enjoy, like, so try different exercises and find one that you enjoy. Like we, you and me were just talking about earlier how I enjoy football because it's like I don't even notice I'm doing the running because I'm so zoned in on the game. And, like, try and find exercise that's not a chore. And, yeah, try and try and spend time with people who, you know, make you feel good about yourself. Um, I guess those are the, are the sort of the main things I'd tell past me. And do you think that if you said it just like that, you'd have been receptive to that information and acted accordingly? I like to think so, yeah. I, I can't guarantee, but I feel like those would be kind of what I needed to hear. Is there any other way that you could potentially present it to yourself and you would, there'll be a higher possibility of you hearing it? Because what I'm assuming here, and correct me if I'm wrong, your parents said some solid stuff to you whilst you was in that state and you didn't hear it for one reason or another. So even if you came along and said it, what's then different from what your parents said to then what you're saying to yourself? Would it have to be a matter of you'd have to get yourself on a one-on-one environment, playing a game, going for a walk or anything like that to help it sink in more than someone just talking at you? Yeah, because I guess the talking, the parents' things were like, I, I was kind of hearing what they were saying but not, but not believing them, like, kind of thinking that like I don't know that's not not that it's not true but if they suggested doing some sort of exercise class I just assume I wouldn't enjoy it whereas if I had someone who's been also been through mental illness say oh I tried this class and it really worked for me I think it's the key like listen to someone if they've got lived experience of what you've been through that's when you're going to start believing them you're going to start say okay you were also mentally ill on medication, sedated, but this is what helps. Because I think that was the thing, like my parents didn't have any mental illness experience themselves. So it was like, I couldn't resonate and relate to them as much. So that type of thing. So representation is important. You need to see someone that's been through what you're going through or have been through. Yeah, I think as a human beings, we really crave that like we want the kind of shared experience and I think that's part of what I why I do what I do is because I remember the effect it had on me kind of it, it gives you hope that you know you can do something similar yourself and it also makes you feel less alone because I think I felt really alone after my first episode and it wasn't until I started reading that book which which gave me a sense of like oh maybe there's like hundreds thousands millions of us out there who are you know silently struggling 
and that that was the difference like from wanting to learn more about it and open up that's what kind of changed my mind No, that's fair enough. Appreciate that. Thank you very much for sharing. So you're right, forgot to ask to go on to your next L? Yeah. So the next L that you would like to talk about is my book, Befriending My Brain, a psychosis story. So I'm interested because hearing what you've just said, I can imagine, and I'm waiting for you to correct me, that talking so openly about a condition that you have could go very, very, very right, but also it could potentially alienate you from a lot of people because people might think, oh, he's not, quotation mark, normal. He's got something, in quotation mark, wrong with him. And the reality is, is that we've all got mental health that is that needs to be exercised and nurtured and looked after. And all of us have the potential of falling into any of these numerous categories that people have mental health conditions. So. Yeah, before I continue, I commend you again for writing the book because I think it's fantastic that you've done that. But I can, I personally think that to put yourself in such a vulnerable position potentially is where this L coming from. But I'm happy to be corrected. Please go back to the beginning where you feel it's appropriate and tell me how, why you put this as potentially one of your L's. Mm. I think before I started writing the book, I was actually scared of that kind of fear of being judged and being people thinking I was, you know, weird or whatever, like, and treating me differently. And the whole stigma, like, being, like, experiencing stigma, I think I was, it was definitely a concern. And um, I think before I had my first blog, like, published, and I, before I got, before I sent it to the website where I got published, I was very hesitant. And I kind of had to talk it through with mum and dad, like, you know, should I do this? And like, what, what should I be aware of? Like the kind of risks and things that could happen. And the same when I was, when I shared that blog on my social media, it was like coming out. It was like a big reveal to everyone that I have this mental illness. And, um, it was the same for the book. Like I kind of, I start, I kind of started it cause I wanted to help people. And I thought that drive to do the, the right thing sort of overrided the, scary part the part where I sort of doubted myself that you know people wouldn't like the book and it wouldn't like end well for me and all those little kind of doubts you get but it definitely seemed like one of those things where the benefits outweighed the potential drawbacks and it's definitely I feel like it's one of the best decisions I made because it's putting all the words what happened to me down on a word document it was like the all the bad feelings kind of evaporated from my head and they transferred invisibly like onto the document and then they were, they were in front of me instead of being in my head they were in front of me and then I could just process it better and like I could understand it and it was it was very therapeutic like some of my sessions writing the book I spent about half an hour or however long writing and I'll just come out of it feeling really good like really uplifted and really excited like really positive emotions and it's definitely been since the book's come out it's been 
a really enjoyable ride. Like I kind of, I think that's why I referred to it as like a another kind of learning experience. Another like not not so much a roller coaster of up and downs, but like a kind of you get these highs. Like you get a review, which is good, and you people were saying good things who aren't biased. Like the review might be from a complete randomer, and it's like just completely justifies doing it in the first place. And it's led to so many good things. Like I've gone to a book festival, met other authors, and it's led to lots of conversations from people who I know and don't know. So, yeah, I'm just really grateful that I was able to do it and get out there because it's like, it's one of those things that I'm glad it's out there because it'll be gone, it'll be around longer than I'll be around. And hopefully one day, like, kids, grandkids, if I have them, they'll see that I did it and be proud and stuff like that. So it's, I'm just really pleased with how it's turned out. That's great. Because I, I have this thing where if I get anxious about something, I have to get it out of my head. I like him when there's too much stuff going on in my head, I like it to write it on a napkin. There's not enough space for me to be able to write out what I want to write out. And it's not legible because it's too small. When I talk to the right people, I say the right people, because there are some people you can talk to and they just don't help the situation anyway, at any way, shape or form. They just bring you further down. But when you've got the right people and you can talk to them or you've given yourself a nice blank canvas of a good size, you've got more area to write on and to work on. And then you can actually read it without straining or struggling to remember what you wrote and rearrange it and play around with it and just feel what you're feeling without any judgment. But when it's crammed up with that napkin, you don't know what you're feeling from what you're not feeling because it's all overlapping. It's all crunched up into one mushed up place. My vocab is short. I'm so sorry, folks. But I, I just like the idea that you managed to get those thoughts, those feelings and everything else onto paper. And it was, it felt good for you. When was the point where you felt like I need to do this? Was this when you read that other book about schizophrenia or was this another time where it triggered you to go, I want to write a book? Yeah, it was a combination of things. So that book I mentioned was part of the driving force, which led me to doing the blog and then when you start doing blogs, you discover other people doing blogs. And I um, followed this girl who had bipolar and she posted a new blog saying, oh, the secret's out, I'm going to be an author. And I was like, oh, okay, check this out, see what see what she's talking about. And then she said, oh, yeah, this, this mental illness publisher, the like specialist publisher, are publishing my memoir. And then that led to me discovering my publisher's website and it was just like one of those light bulb eureka moments. It's like I'm having such a good experience writing and I'm enjoying reading other people's stories. I think I've got enough material like in my brain to put down in a Word document and hopefully turn into a book. And I really just wanted to pass on the feeling that I'd gotten from reading other people's books. I, I, I want someone to read mine and to feel better and to like to feel hope or to think about someone like oh I know someone who might benefit from this book and then pass it on like all those good things that come with it I think it's, it's amazing how like it, it works and like it's such a good community it's a, it's a similar thing with podcasts to be honest like you listen to one and the guests they're talking to might be from another podcast so you follow them on social media and then before you know it you're following all these different podcasts and it's just like a nice sort of domino snowball effect where you discover 
different people and yeah i know sometimes social media is a bit it can be a bit bad press and it can be a bit toxic and not like bad for people's mental health but i feel like in some ways it can also be a really good like like a driving force for good it can help people discover some really really nice things as well oh indeed i definitely agree with that and it's nice that you managed to get yourself in that position did you have any form of anxiety or any reservations about doing this like writing it down is one thing but publishing it is another thing I think I wasn't sure I'd have enough, I'd be able to make it long enough. Like I didn't think I would be able to produce enough chapters for it to be long enough to be a book. I think I also wasn't sure my story would be good enough. Like it would be interesting enough and it would help people. I kind of had all these self-doubts and a bit of imposter syndrome and things like that. And yeah, I just, I kind of, I guess I had a little worry maybe the book would be a sort of quote-unquote failure, like it wouldn't, no one would buy it and it would just be a big waste of time. And they, they, they weren't huge, like, thoughts and worries, but I think it was just a tiny part of me was, and I think it's normal when you kind of go into a project like that, you kind of have those kind of self-doubts. But I managed to get to quite a good place where I was saying to myself that writing these chapters is, making me feel good it's it's therapeutic and I kind of decided I was almost made a promise with myself that no matter what happens with the outcome of the book it's time well spent because it's doing me a lot of good and then once I started thinking like that that was really that helps a lot because then I saw it as like a win-win situation like no matter no matter what happens like I've put my story down and it's made me feel better so that that's like enough amazing i can say i'm gonna say you're a better man than me but i think i'm putting myself down more than i actually should be but i think in terms of being able to be able to put your situation like that out there for other people to see even though you know you've gone to a ward you've been there for a month and you already was previously concerned about how people can um, perceived you I think that's a very, very bold thing to do. And I think that's highly commendable. Thank you. It's just, I don't know where the resolve came from, but it was there. So if you're not calling that L, what are you calling it? Well, the whole, the whole book experience. Yeah, man. The book pro, like you birthing that book and making that happen. There's so many things I could use to describe it, like a journey and a project, a project, like, um, just, a. It's like putting myself out into the world, isn't it? It's like it's like my imprint on society or something like that. It's like my contribution to society, like my because I'm always like trying to help people. Like it's one of the reasons I want to I work at a charity and I try to do good, like trying to do my bit. But I feel like the book's the biz- the biggest example of that. It's like the biggest way I could contribute and like do my bit is is the book. Fair enough. So if we go back, when was your most challenging time writing that book? I had some times where I guess I had a bit of rise block and also certain chapters were harder to write than others because I had to revisit the trauma. So I had to like kind of dig really deep into my mind like because I think I had almost tried to lock the trauma away and like the, the really bad memories. I didn't want to think about them, but 
I had to think about them to write the book. And also the book's got a few, it's got three like chat pieces with other people. It's like a conversation with ones with my mum, ones with my partner, ones with my best friends. So actually having those chats with those people and recording them, that was hard as well, just because I knew I was going to be having difficult conversations and I knew they were going to say things about me when I was ill and potentially things that I didn't remember because with psychosis, a lot of your behavior and your actions, you don't actually remember them. It's like, and it makes you feel really kind of like embarrassed, I guess, and a bit regretful. So I guess though that was kind of the hardest bit about writing the book. It was just revisiting the version of me, which I didn't like, (laughs) you know, I, I wish I'd never treated people badly when I was ill. So yeah, revisiting that whole thing was not easy, but it was still worth doing like in the long run, I think. So what are you saying to your younger self then when you're finding it difficult and I, I don't know, was you, was you potentially going to pack it in? Was it ever a point where you felt like you weren't going to continue this? What, packing the book? Yeah. Yeah, I think, because I, I, I spent the best part of, part of four years writing it, but it wasn't like a continuous process. Like I wouldn't do the same uh, writing every week. Some weeks I'd do a lot and some weeks I'd do absolutely nothing. Like I'd because I knew it wasn't like a proper project that had a deadline. So I didn't put pressure on myself like, oh, you've got to finish it by this time. I just thought, you know, there's no pressure. It's just my little hobby kind kind of thing. So I guess I, I almost thought like, am I going to run out of things to write about? But that's okay because sometimes you can't really think of it. But then another time it just sort of pops in your head. So I kept doing this thing where when I was out and about, I would just put, make a little note on my phone, like write about so-and-so, and I did that. So I, I kind of made a brief note about my, what my thought was, and then I could expand on that note and write more of the book. Nice. So with all that being said, do you think there would have been a time that you could have gone back to your younger self to encourage you to push through or do you feel you don't you didn't need that you felt that you got there in adequate time without any real resistance I feel yeah I feel like the second one I feel quite I, I think I had the right attitudes I didn't you know give myself a deadline or put pressure on myself because I knew it wasn't a work thing I just as I said before had that kind of deal with myself that whatever happens this writing is therapeutic for me. So just take it easy, like just one step at a time. Just it'll, it'll be done when it's done. And when you got to that point where it was done and you had the chance to submit it to the publisher or not, because there was always that possibility, what made you go through just going send? I think it was like I discovered the pub shot I wanted and I did a bit of research on the industry. I went to an online webinar about the whole process so I I sort of knew what I was up against and I did have a few months where I I was emailing different publishers and agents trying to get somewhere with it and I wasn't getting much much luck but then I found a publisher who did like self-publishing packages which is effectively where you pay for a package which like they do proofreading and 
check-in and like there's loads of stuff included and it's just a more realistic way of getting your book out there so I got to that point and I think what I actually found quite difficult was is this book finished should I submit this manuscript now or should I wait and see if anything else happens to me which is worth writing about and then add a bit more to the book and then send it off so and I was told that authors actually get this quite a lot it's hard to let go because once you send the manuscripts to the publishers you're allowed you can still make edits kind of as you're working up towards the cutoff point but then there is actually a cutoff point where they can't accept any more amends or edits or additions from you and it's like so that's the version it's going to go out as and that's final so I think I did find it quite hard to like say oh please can you include this one more thing that I've discovered and yeah that was a tricky but it is what it is (laughs) fantastic and I just think there's probably well actually what's the feedback been on you about your book before I make the assumption what has the feedback been for your book so far the reviews on Amazon have been really good it's been lots of people actually said they read it in a day which is um possible because it's only it's 160 pages so it's possible to read it in a day and I, I take that as like a a good thing because um it means it's a sort of book they can't put down so it, it's been really nice to hear all those things it gives me a boost because I I wasn't I thought it might be good but I didn't believe myself that it was good until I got like non-biased opinions and reviews coming back um, fantastic yeah <laughs> that's great so I think it's fair enough we can conclude this because you don't have to tell yourself anything because you pushed through, you backed yourself, you knew that there was going to be some benefit to this. Like you said before in a previous L where you read someone else's story and you was hooked on it and you you just made that connection. I think that's beautiful and that's part of the reason why this podcast for me is so personal and how many people relate to other people's stories, hearing what's going on and some people unearth some traumas that they've probably experienced, but not been able to articulate. And I just love that we can use the internet in such a positive way rather than the toxic way that we're usually exposed to. What I'll ask you to do for the next two minutes, please selfishly plug anything and everything you've got going on and where people can find you. Yeah, sure. Um, so on, on socials, I'm, James Lindsay 23 on Twitter and I'm James Lindsay underscore 23 on Instagram and the book it's called Befriend in My Brain a psychosis story and you can find it on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle versions and I've recently actually not so long ago finished recording the audiobook version of it as well so that's not quite there yet but hopefully in the next month or two that'll be available as well so it's in all the formats. So it's in Amazon. It's on the Waterstones website. It's not in many stores yet. We're trying to get in more bookshops, but that's a work in progress. But yeah, the easiest way to get access it is Amazon, I think. And it's Lindsay with an I, not with a Y. Yeah, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. And there's about four or five different ways to spell my surname. So it's fair enough if... Uh, definitely so all the details will be in the show notes so you can check it down there 
and yeah, we'll keep in contact. But I absolutely love you coming on and sharing how, how much you did and hopefully guess, uh, the guest, hopefully the listeners now have heard and understand why I praise you so highly because your honesty, your rawness of your situation, I think a lot of us who are potentially of our age group can remember seeing things on TV where they portrayed if someone was to be sectioned, they would be carted off in a, in a white suit that's got clips on it where they just, they can't use their arms anymore, thrown into the back of a wagon, taken down to this padded room. And that's where they're going to stay until they enter their better in quotation marks. And the reason why I think it's, it's, it's scary is because until we know someone that occupies that space or has lived that experience, we don't know any different because no one's come out and spoken about it because it's taboo. You know, it's back, you know, once upon a time, I used to think when you complete an application form, it says, what, you know, what ethnicity do you see yourself? Not an issue. Do you have any issues that you feel we should need to know about, like mental health issues or physical disabilities? And I'm thinking, no, because that was always the case for myself. But I never looked at it thinking, well, some people might be paranoid thinking my ethnicity might be a sticking point. My my learning dif- disability might be a sticking point. My physical disability might be a sticking point. Not saying that it should be at all, but if you then had to say, I've had psychosis, I've had this, I've had that, you've then got something else to concern yourself with, which I never really thought about previously. It's only through these type of conversations that you learn and think, wow, a lot of pe- a lot of us are going through things and we just need to appreciate that what may be something easy for you to deal with or overcome isn't necessarily so easy for someone else to do the same as well. But I, I just appreciate your honesty because I can only imagine what it's like to be being sectioned like that and having to deal with feeling that way that you need that level of support. And if you're a prideful person, like going to the, de- uh, going to the dentist, <laughs> going to the GP just to, just to appease your parents, but in reality, you was honest. And that's important. You were honest with the GP. You accepted the help they offered you and still steady the cause. That is so powerful. And that's not just telling people what to do. You're living proof of what good can come from doing that and not, not everything's a conspiracy. I'm not saying everyone's wrong for thinking things are conspiracy. Cause I'll, I'll be honest with you. I used to go into a GP and I honestly looked at the books on the shelves and I thought the last thing they read is the thing they're going to diagnose me with because it's fresh in their memory, right? Yeah. But I know sometimes we can have conspiracy theories rightly or wrongly, but I think it's so important that if you need to look after yourself, but you do not have that piece of paper, that PhD after your name that says you know what's wrong with yourself and you can self-diagnose yourself, which doctors don't even do themselves, don't run the risk. If you can, seek the help, get the help and just just do what you need to do to look after yourself and just know even if you are going through something, you're not the only one going through it. James just admitted that he read a book from someone else about their condition and it lit a fire in him. And now he's out here with author doing audio books as well. So, you know, whatever situation you find yourself in, just don't, don't think it's your forever. And there's no reason why you can't turn that negative into a positive because technically it's in your control. It's how you perceive things. James also had times where he didn't see things very glass half full, glass half empty majority of the time, but he then learned how, to flip it on its head and find a positive. He got himself out in groups. He found something he enjoyed. And that's something where when you're in depression, it's very hard to discover. But if you can hold on to that, 
Find that thing that keeps you smiling, that thing that keeps you motivated, that thing that helps you see life in color, not just in black and white. You're winning and just keep in that space as long as you can until you can keep a healthy coping mechanism about yourself to live a fulfilled life that you deserve to live. So I feel like I probably preached it. I do apologize, folks. You know how passionate I get at this stuff like this, but I wish you all the best. I thank James once again for jumping on and just remember, well, actually, no, let me change it up. And for everyone, the new phrase that I've come across that I've, I came up with and I like it. So everyone just remember, an L is not a loss unless you stop right now. An L is only a couple of letters away from a lesson. Enjoy the rest of your day and whatever you do. And I'll see you in the next one. Take care.